welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support so many of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I talked with an inspiring New Deal leader, Maine State Representative Ryan Fechtow, who will officially be sworn in this week as the first openly gay man to be Speaker of the Maine House, as well as the youngest Speaker currently serving anywhere in the country. Ryan and I talked about these milestones, as well as being the first Speaker from his hometown. We also talked about his journey as the son of a single working mother on food stamps, to a life in public service where he's made a difference on so many issues, including a successful effort last year to ban conversion therapy for LBGTQ youth in Maine. So Ryan Fechtow, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Debbie. So good to see you. Uh, first, I just want to give you a huge congratulations. Um, last, this, earlier this month, I guess, Democrats, your fellow Democrats in the House, uh, elected you to be the new Speaker of the House. And that will be official, I think, on December 2nd, when the full um, House convenes to vote. So just a huge congratulations uh, in general. But in particular, you're making a couple of milestones. You are going to be the first openly gay man elected Speaker of Maine, and you're going to be the youngest speaker in the whole country. So um, I'm really just ex- so excited to talk to you about that and to find out you know, how you're feeling about those huge milestones. Yeah, I mean, very, very exciting. I've been joking by saying that, you know, I'm surprised everyone's making such a big deal out of the fact that I'm the first openly gay speaker in Maine's history and the the youngest in the country currently serving as speaker. Uh, Because for me, the biggest deal is the fact that I'm the first speaker from my hometown of Biddeford in Maine's 200 year history. And so uh, I'm most excited about bringing the speakership home to my hometown. That is awesome. I love it. I love it. You know, we were talking a little bit about just the backdrop you find yourself in here um, as speaker. We've obviously got COVID raging across the country. We've got an economy to rebuild. We have a long overdue reckoning on race. You know, you're going to take over as speaker in a really tough time, frankly. So tell me how you're approaching that and what you're thinking in terms of what your priorities are going to be. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a challenging time for leaders, not obviously not only in Maine, but across the country. I mean, we're facing a large budget deficit here in Maine. Um, obviously, we have an economy that relies heavily on tourism and with the mandatory stay at home order earlier in the year and um, just the general fear, fears about traveling. Uh, Maine's tourism industry was was impacted in, a, in an immense way. And thus, revenues for the state were, were impacted in a huge way. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do to s- sort of uh, navigate these troubled waters and try to find a way forward that, you know, for me, the priority being protecting the most vulnerable in our communities, making sure that uh, older Mainers, for example, um, who, you know, uh, might be 
utilizing services such as our, you know, drugs for the elderly program, you know, making sure that their prescription drugs uh, are not immensely expensive. You know, our children who uh, have access to a number of programs, you know, we only get one shot to make sure children succeed, really. You know, we, you know, if we're going to put programs that they depend on and put, you know, put those on the chopping block, you know, I'm concerned about uh, the impacts that would have over the long term. I know it's easy sometimes to think about, okay, we can easily cut these programs and save money in the immediate. Uh, but it's also recognizing what the costs will be over the long term to the state by cutting services that, you know, our families are relying on right now, especially during this pandemic, to get by. And these are going to be the challenges that we face. Yeah. Are you optimistic that there's common ground within the legislature to get some of that done? Yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic because I think, you know, these are the times in which leaders rally together regardless of party affiliation. And, and my hope is that once again, we'll prove as, as lawmakers, as public servants, that partisanship is not the thing to put first. In fact, the thing that must come, uh, uh, must be priority is ensuring that our communities, our families, our neighbors are able to, to get by and to succeed and to stay afloat. And right now, um, the decisions we're going to be making in, in Augusta um, will be about keeping families afloat. And I, I don't think that's a partisan issue. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ryan, let me ask you, ask you this question. You know, when you're thinking about leading, it's going to be fantastic, I suspect, to have a, a new administration to work with um, as a full partner. How are you thinking about that as you look forward? Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be a game changer, I think, in many ways to have a partner in Washington that you know, we can rely on and work with. Um, you know, I, I've, I've served now in various forms of government. The only one I have not served in is a Democratic trifecta with a Democratic president in, in Washington. Um, and the last time for me, and that's, that's, that's been the situation was back in 2008. So um, it's very, very exciting that we have a, a partner in Washington, you know, just, just on like basic things. I mean, being able to have someone that takes this pandemic seriously, I, I was joking the other day that, um, you know, we have a president currently uh, who's occupying the White House who uh, has taken more energy, devoted more energy to uh, calling into question the integrity of our election. He tweets about it pretty much every day uh, than he did the, this pandemic. And I, I think about, you know, where, where would we be as a nation if he put as much effort into uh, keeping our communities safe as he has, um, you know, uh, calling the question, uh, calling into question the, the election. Um, you know, we really need, we've needed change in Washington desperately over the last four years, but the, certainly this last year has put into perspective just how important that office is. And um, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to uh, building back better with, with President Biden and uh, Vice President Harris. Here, here. As you know, we talk, like to talk a little bit on an honorable profession uh, about people's path and journey into public service. And, and you're so fun because you are so young. I mean, you are 28 years old, but you are, but you are in your fourth session as legislator. So you are not, you are experienced, but you started in public service at a young age. That's my point there. Um, so I'd love to just think, you know, you've been pretty open about your background and your upbringing. You were raised by a single mom, a working mom um, who struggled sometimes, learned to read, I think, late, later than some and, and made your way to college first in your family. So I'm, I'm first curious kind of about how your upbringing, your childhood, you know, how that kind of impacted your view of, 
I don't know, of government or of, of public service or you know, just kind of how you think about that time and, and bringing that forward into you serving now? Yeah, I, I mentioned to in my speech to my colleagues during our leadership caucus that uh, my experience growing up uh, defined and, and, and led me to being a Democrat. I mean, all the things that, you know, our party believes in and fights for were experiences that I had growing up. You know, for example, uh, we had food stamps. I mean, we had the actual food stamps that you had like in a booklet, <laughs> um, not the not the EBT cards that the, that are plastic now. But, um, you know, we 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 depended on those. I mean, that was that put food on the table and I, and by no means was it was it enough, but it did put some food on the table. You know, we had an unreliable uh, beat up car that, you know, would would cause uh, lots of headaches. You know, some days would work and some days would not. You know, we were relatively food insecure. My mom is a is still a um, low wage healthcare worker, and you know when we talk about minimum wage and the fight for a living wage, like these are real issues that I have seen up close and personal. I've seen my mom, you know, struggle to make ends meet, to you know to uh, you know be be in tears when the rent was due at the end of the month, and we lived in low income housing, and like even low income housing uh, doesn't necessarily set a of uh, a, a, a monthly bill that is that is affordable, and so we you know we have so many things that I think collectively we care about as Democrats that I've had the living the lived experience of of facing, and so yeah, I mean when I think about the pandemic and the challenges that we face in the upcoming year as 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 legislators, you know I know the families and what they're facing because. Those yeah. are, that's my family. I've been there. And so many families right now, frankly, and it's um, it's so important to bring that experience to to bear. Maine's lucky to have you. Tell me about you got to high school, and I think something happened in your high school that kind of opened your eyes. I read to the kind of possibility of public service and the sense of agency that you could make a difference and make a change. Uh, what was that? What was that experience? Yeah. So I, for some reason, I, I have no idea to this day what possessed me, but the, there was a, a teacher that came around to my biology class and offered students the opportunity to apply to be a student representative on our school committee. And I, I had, I had transferred from another school district, you know, the next town over. And so I was still very shy, did not have very many friends. Um, and definitely politics was not something I had at all an interest in. Uh, but for some reason, I was compelled to apply and I ended up getting selected. Uh, and I'm sure they chose me because I was quiet because they thought I wouldn't cause any trouble. Um, but sure enough, I caused a lot of little did they know a lot of good trouble, a lot of good trouble, <laughs> good as trouble, as uh, the late John Lewis would say. And yeah, we had a school that was falling apart. I mean, we had there would be days you'd sit in the classroom and the ceiling tile would have filled up with so much water that it would fall down in the middle of class. Um, there was a there was a classroom in the basement level of the building that would literally have a, a you know a water water just spouting out like like it was a like it was a stream <laughs> that was uh, running through the walls it was it was really really bad and of course you know with water infiltration comes mold and all those all those things and our school district was not eligible for state funding for renovation and so there was a proposal on the, but uh, in front of the city council to put forward a bond to voters for $34 million. I, you know, to, to per, for perspective, I live in a town of 23,000 people. So we were asking 23,000 uh, you know, folks here in Biddeford to foot the bill for a school renovation, um, which was an, an immense challenge. And 
Uh, you know, my peers and I, we led, we led uh, tours of the school after, after school every day and uh, giving, you know, folks in the community the chance to see the building because obviously if you haven't been in school for a while, you probably don't even think about what the school looks like and what students are facing. And we won. Sure. We won. We got that. We got, we got that passed. Amazing. Amazing. You got the, you got the bug. You saw what could happen. Yeah. And it really never left you. Yes. <laughs> it never left you. I love that. Sometimes it just, you just need that exposure, right? To understand that where you can make a difference. So how did you end up at, you ended up at Catholic University. Of course, I want to talk about your Catholicism. It's something you also wear very proudly on your sleeve. What was your journey like to Catholic University, interestingly, particularly since you were the first person to go to college? It's interesting. You ended up out of state and, yeah. um, you know, at a big university like that. Well, I, I was pretty obsessed with being in DC. So I, I don't think it really mattered which school I ended up at, but uh, I wanted to be in DC. And so Catholic offered my, the best financial aid package. And so that's where I ended up. I also did have an interest in being at a Catholic institution, but it didn't necessarily need to be a Catholic institution, but that's where I ended up. So yeah. Was that the political? Was that you wanted to be in DC because of your, yeah. this intersection yeah. with politics? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And did you, I don't know this, did you, um, were you able to like do internships or something? Did you get some experience oh, yeah. oh, in, yeah. in DC when you were there? I, I think I had an that. internship like my first semester with the DNC and then, uh, you know, bounced around my congresswoman and yeah, I, I, I took full, took full, advantage. full advantage of the opportunity. <laughs> That is so fantastic. I love that. It's important, I think, for people listening to to understand, you know, again, about public service, just that, you know, getting your feet in the door, having those internships, experiences, um, you know, that's what eventually makes a, you know, makes a, a career, really. Those are early, you know, things you can find to do and to meet people and to get experience. So that's fantastic. And then you came back right away um, from, from Catholic and ran for office literally right after college yeah so yeah. did you know even before you left you were going to come back and do that or did something happen to make you decide this is the time i decided that i was going to run the summer before my final two semesters at at catholic and so you know there's there's a upshot of of term limits that you know i i think they're kind of they're kind of problematic but in one in one instance they are they are there is an upshot which is you know there's an opportunity for someone at 22 years old to run for office because my the person who was representing me had no choice but to leave office, <laughs> and she was she was in her eighties. So for for I mean just to put it in perspective, like overnight, my legislative district went from an eighty year old to a twenty two year old, uh, sixty year difference in age, and 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 also funny enough, she also was my neighbor. So the the district went from literally one house right over to the other. So. <laughs> Um, it was not I love a huge that. They knew where to find you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I love that. Well, what was that, that like? I mean, you walk into, you know, obviously you're, you know, just talking about you becoming speaker. So you've, you know, earned respect and, and developed great relationships. But you walk into the legislature as a 22 year old. Um, I mean, what was that experience like? How, you know, how did you find that? How did people treat you? What, what surprised you? Well, well, one of the funny experiences was I, I, I served on the labor committee uh, and I was I was sandwiched in between two Republicans uh, at the horseshoe, and uh, one of them definitely thought that because of my age, I was going to be suddenly like, you know, lured into the Republican thinking. Which of course I had very much uh, decided, you know, who I was and the values that I had. So uh, his attempts at, at changing my perspective did not really work all that well. But it was funny to think that it was funny to see that you know. He clearly thought that I was going going to change my my perspectives just because 
uh, I was young. But overall, I mean, uh, my experience in the legislature from day one to now has been that, like anything, trust is earned and respect is earned. And um, I think that I have done uh, my due diligence in proving to my colleagues that I'm capable of handling uh, whatever uh, tasks are assigned to me. And so whether it was you know, serving as a first-term member or serving as the chair of the labor committee or serving as the assistant majority leader for the last two years, um, I, I, I've you know, done, I've done what I think is a good job at ensuring and improving to my, my colleagues that I'm, I'm capable and that I can, I can do the job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing you had great success on was, um, and, and some of, again, our listeners may know you for your national leadership on this, that you were able to successfully uh, get through legislation to ban conversion therapy um, for youth in Maine. I'd love to hear about that experience and, and um, for, you know, both in terms of your own decision to make that a priority for yourself and the the, the, the catalyst for doing something about that. And then also, what was it like with your colleagues? Was that any, you know, was it an easy fight? Was that, you know, was it not, you know, what did you learn about, uh, about getting something like that through? Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting because the first, I put this bill in my second term uh, and we still had a Republican governor at the time and the Senate was controlled by Republicans. And so you would look at that landscape and think, okay, this is going to be a pretty uphill battle. You know, we had tremendous success with some fantastic allies in the in the Senate who were Republicans who uh, came came to support the bill. And I guess I learned I learned in that experience just you know the importance of not making judgments as to you know whom might be supportive and whom who who might not be. And you know, I I, I think I built. With one particular senator, uh, you know, a lifelong uh, friendship and and degree of respect because of her support and her champ. I mean, she just wasn't a supporter; she was a champion for the bill, and and that really that really meant a lot to me, especially since the issue was so personal. Ultimately, it got to the governor's desk, and our previous governor became the first governor in the country to veto a ban on conversion therapy, even though our neighbors, New Hampshire. Uh, their governor had signed a Republican governor had signed that very bi- that a very similar bill into law only a few months before or maybe even days before I can't remember the exact details. So you know it was just like such a contrast and uh, and obviously pretty discouraging. Um, but we came back uh, a, a year later and uh, our new Democratic governor Janet Mills uh, signed the bill into law and the 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 deed was done. This issue was personal for me because I had an experience with. Uh, a trusted professional who uh, did not, you know, I didn't, I wasn't subjected to conversion therapy, but was suggested literature f- from someone who supposedly uh, had gone through conversion therapy and was a, you know, success story, um, you know, air quotes. <laughs> um, and that, that experience, that, that, that experience of having someone that I trusted even suggest that I take up this kind of literature really, really, um, had significant emotional uh, and psychological impact on me um, that, you know, I felt like if, if that, if it could have an impact by just having a, having it suggested in terms of, of reading material, imagine the impact it would have on a young person who was young, who would be younger than me. Uh, you know, I was like 20 or 19 at the time, but you know, 15 or 16 or 17 year old who maybe just came out to their parents being subjected to 
this harmful practice and being in such a vulnerable place, you know, I, I felt very passionately that this is something that should not be uh, practiced in the state of Maine or anywhere. And uh, I hope to see a day when all 50 states ban this, this practice. Yeah, I think you were the 17th state. Is that right? Yeah, 17 or 18th. It was like, I think Colorado and Maine were, were sort of competing for which governor would sign into law first. Yeah, that's so great. And did you, I mean, throughout that experience, I assume you talked to people who had been through, you know, who were dealing with it in Maine. You know, I, I know when I'm talking to some people, you know, just kind of that, that it's so powerful to be, to, you know, to go back to your story about the, the high school, right? And, and understanding the difference you can make, right? The connection you're making between, you know, the people who are living this and the fact that you have the power to do something about that and to make their lives better, you know, must have been an incredibly rewarding experience. Yeah, I, th- I think perhaps one of the most most touching things was I received a note on the House floor um, the first time around. We 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 tried passing the bill, and I had given a you know delivered a speech on the floor, and I received an anonymous note. To this day, I don't know who it was, um, but they spoke about their experience facing suicide and um, and and how inspiring I was to them, and the fact that I shared my own story and. Uh, it really just puts into perspective, like you don't know when you're in, when you're in a, a leadership role like this, you just don't know like who's listening and whose life you could be impacting. And yeah, I, uh, it really, it, for, for me, it like sort of was like, it congealed that moment of like, okay, this is, this is the power of the representation that I have, um, being, you know, so privileged to be sent to, the state, the state house by my, by my community. Yeah, no, I've got goosebumps. It is so um, important that people realize that. And, you know, and it's, and it's, it's hard sometimes to break, to get through that noise, a, when there's so much polarization. And I love what you said about, you know, not being some, you know, not making assumptions about who's going to be with you and who's not. I mean, I think sometimes we, you know, in particularly in this day and age with the hyper partisanship, the deep divides, we just, you know, when we're not even maybe watching the same news programs or whatever it is, you know, we assume we have two different sets of facts now almost, you know, that that is just so important, that kind of connection on a human level and that, you know, not, and and having that faith that it sounds like you had that you could find allies maybe in unusual places to get this done. And I think that that's just such an important lesson for all of us going forward because we've got a new a new day to build here, actually, which is exciting. I do, and on that front, I would love to talk to you for a minute about about Maine um, more generally in kind of the political sphere. Obviously, it, people may not know that you're succeeding um, Sarah Gideon as Speaker, who, of course, ran the unsuccessfully against Susan Collins. Uh, many people nationally will know her. And frankly, you know, she looked pretty good going into the final days from, outs, you know, from an outsider perspective. A lot of Democratic Senate candidates did around the country and then it turned out on election day not to be so and so i'm curious from a um you know on the ground perspective did that that race results surprise you or what what should we know as you know from outside about what was really going on that was not kind of reflected in those polls yeah you you know i mean first and first i should say that it has been an absolute pleasure and honor to serve with Speaker Gideon over the last six years, and most specifically the last four years, I've been privileged to serve in leadership alongside her the last two years, and seeing uh, just the grace and fortitude and like determination and uh, her persistence and just like her stoicness. I mean, she is just an absolutely dynamic and 
amazing leader and our state would have been very fortunate to have her representing us in Washington. And I know that there are uh, amazing possibilities ahead for her. She's uh, a, still a young leader and you know someone that I think will have a bright future in, in Maine politics or wherever she ends up. Well, and she inspired a lot of people around the country, I'll just say too. So yeah, not just in yeah. Maine, but yes, that was, yes. I'm glad you were, you know, I'm very, I'm very thankful that, you know, we were able to share her with, yeah, yeah. with all of you for the duration of the campaign. You know, I wasn't surprised by the result necessarily. I mean, I think, I think, you know, Senator Collins uh, has a, built a really, a, a, a reputation here, here in the state that is is concrete in, in many ways, and um, getting through that 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 reputation that she has, I think, was very difficult for Sarah's campaign. You know, trying to uh, convince Mainers that Susan had changed, which we know she had because we had seen the, the number of votes she, that she had taken that um, she probably maybe would not have taken years before and certainly her her aligning you know lining herself up with uh, president trump just really discouraging and not the susan collins that you know i had known you know someone that i i I felt like was not interested in partisan politics but rather and not interested in allegiances to presidents but rather doing what's right for main people but ultimately she she had she had a reputation she has a reputation here that I think was very difficult to dissolve and ultimately I think helped her win re-election. But also the other aspect of things, you know, Donald Trump was driving out people to vote for for him as well. And so you had, you know, that down ticket effect, um, which obviously is reflected in uh, the fact that we lost a couple seats in the House as well. So, you know, it was very, it was, you know, two, I think two things sort of at play, Susan's reputation, which was hard to dissolve, and then Donald Trump driving out uh, voters who perhaps traditionally didn't don't vote, but um, felt like he was the guy for the job. Interesting again, <laughs> and it's so interesting too because I mean, it, you know, like it sounds like in Maine, like in a lot of places in the country, there was this assumption that high turnout just equal Democratic votes, right? And I think that that myth has been shattered a little bit. I mean, and and we should all be happy. We are all happy that ter- we we will still be the party of high turnout because we believe in <laughs> Fran, you know, Frankie yeah, should people have a voice. So, you know, we're not going to make it a political calculation. So that's that's good no matter who people vote for. But um but I I do think it's interesting that that kind of was not the the way that the it played out with the high turnout. You know, Donald Trump got a lot of votes, more votes than anybody in history besides Joe Biden, right? Um, interesting. But back on your point about the House um, and you losing a few seats, just, you know, what what do you think, what do you take away from that kind of going forward, not just looking backward, but going forward in terms of how you think, what it means to govern, I guess, you know, as a speaker, you know, what does it mean to govern in a, in a state where you have the majority, but, you, you know, you, you did lose some seats last time. And, um, you know, you've talked a lot about, trying to work across the aisle and find common ground. Like, just tell me about kind of how, you, how you're thinking about that in this context. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm very thankful that we uh, retained as many seats as we did. I, you know, I kind of had uh, short-term memory loss because in 2016, things were far worse for us after that. And you, we usually consider presidential elections great for Democrats. Well, 2016 was horrible for the main house. Um, we had a very mm-hmm. slim majority and I'm very thankful that we have you know, the, the majority that we do. And then you look across the country, you know, again, look at New Hampshire. They, they really, they really had a red wave uh, that impacted their state legislature. So uh, in perspective, I'm very, I'm very thankful for where we're at, but we, ha- you know, we have, we have a, we have to do a better job of communicating 
to our constituents in some of these rural districts. I mean, we the districts that we lost were definitely, you know, uh, working class rural districts, uh, areas that, you know, maybe were former, are still mill towns or former mill towns. And, you know, we're losing traction, with, I think, with our with the Democratic message, which I think ultimately is is helping these these districts and helping these towns and helping these folks. But we have lost we've lost ground and we have to I think as Democrats, we have to rethink, you know, how do we communicate with folks in rural in rural areas who don't see us as the party of solutions? Why is that? And how can we how can we win them back over? Because I, I think we are I think we are the party of solutions, but we're clearly not doing a good job of communicating that in terms of you know what we face over the next two years with our with our majority in the House and in the Senate. I think over the last six years of serving the legislature, um, so much, so much of what we do is relationship built. And, you know, I think, I think communication and being clear and honest, and those are the, those are the founding, you know, the founding principles for me in terms of, in terms of leadership, I'm going to tell the minority leader in the house exactly what I think. (laughs) And she's going to know where I stand on the issues and, um, I hope she does, you know, I, I, I feel confident that she'll do the same for me, that, you know, we will be clear communicators with one another. And that is a that is a very strong starting point for a relationship that will be successful in terms of our leader, leadership together. I chaired the Joint Standing Committee on Labor with a Republican senator, and we had a very good working relationship because of the very things that I just mentioned. Um, so I've been tried and tested in this regard in terms of, you know, working through tough issues. The Labor Committee, as you can imagine, uh, <laughs> is not a policy committee that deals with very easy legislation. We have we, ha- we had some tough battles, um, but we were able to work through them. And I think we c- ultimately came out with some very uh, positive results, despite the fact that we were serving in divided government at that time. And, you know, I think some of those same prin- principles will apply to the next two years and uh, hopefully we'll We'll have worked together well and, and done some some things that we can look back on and be proud of. Uh, both both me and the minority leader are termed out after this one, so uh, you know hopefully we can look back fondly on the last term uh, and of service and be proud that we did good. Yeah, well, it's an important one as we talked about earlier about the the backdrop. You you mentioned the um, divided government. You, you I think Maine's it's still a trifecta, is it not? Which yes. Is, so that's which is interesting actually because I think people think of Maine as a swing state and um, you know not a not a bright blue state anyway. Um, so uh, how does that factor into kind of your thinking about how you get stuff done with the governor and both houses? We'll certainly make some things a lot easier. <laughs> so that you know, there, there's 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 definitely a lot things that will be far far easier than if one of the you know if we had lost the chamber or uh, didn't have Governor Mills in the Blaine House. So uh, there's definitely some advantages, and I'm very thankful. You know, what's interesting is the state senate did pick up a seat. So Democrats picked up a seat in the state senate. We lost we lost uh, seven incumbents in the House and two seats that were open seats that we had previously held as well. So ultimately nine seats altogether. So um, it's, it is interesting to see that, you know, that dynamic at play where we lost seats, but the Senate uh, picked up a district. So 
it's a good sign for Democrats, you know, there's, there's still hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Of course, sir. yes, there is. But I think you're right about, and we're going to, um, this is something I think that at the New Deal we'll spend some time talking about is this question of, you know, how to bring back people from the, to the fold, uh, particularly in rural districts. And I mean, obviously there, our messages are not resonating. Um, and I think we need to take that seriously, you know, and we need to, we need to, um, you know, not figure out how to, you know, scream the same thing louder, but how do we really listen to their concerns that are le- real about their fears and their worries about the economy and health and a, a whole bunch of things and, and just talk to them differently, right? So I think that that's going to be a huge challenge for us going forward as a party um, and, and, you know, and as a country, because right now we've got to be about uniting the country, right? I mean, we've, we've been through four years of division. That's not working for anybody. So <laughs> we need to, you know, have a different tone and a different mindset, which it sounds like you're already thinking about for, the, for, for Maine. Yeah, and I mean, th- these are folks that are concerned about the future of industry that they've built their livelihoods on. And I think that's really the, I think that's the thing that, you know, we need to keep in mind regardless of party. It's, you know, these, uh, these are families who, are, who, fa- who face uncertain futures. And, you know, any family you know, would be, would be concerned about, about that. And, 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 you know, they would, they want to vote for people that, that they feel are listening and are going to fight for, for change. And I think, you know, part of, I think part of the problem for Democrats has been, we have been seen as sort of the establishment in a way, and Trump represented that upheaval. And, you know, what, what we need, what we need to, I think, communicate to folks that are in these, in these districts or in these communities where the future is uncertain is that we're not okay with the status quo either. You know, we're, we're not just going to, you know, sit here and and watch idly. We're, we're going to take action to make sure that these communities have bright futures. And that means rethinking the industry that, that, that is there, um, trying to retool it, getting folks trained for, for the future workforce, you know, here in Maine, we have some exciting things happening around solar energy and wind energy, offshore wind. Those are those are going to be good paying jobs. It's just a matter of retooling and getting folks trained to work in these industries so that there's a future in rural areas that are, that are sustainable and not yeah. built on on a false premise that uh, that the job of yesterday is going to be there forever. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to end with a couple questions back on kind of the public service pieces of things. One is, you know, I really have so much admiration, honestly, for people who are in public life right now. I mean, we've seen through the, you know, whether it's the governor of Michigan, some really horrific, you know, kind of, it was all, you know, it was always a sacrifice, I think, to, to put yourself out there and be out in the public, held to scrutiny and all those things. But, you know, this, this kind of vitriol we're seeing, you know, with governors and mayors and others around the country, uh, particularly in the, you know, in the spirit of COVID, masks, other things. But just this idea that, you know, people should be, you know, or doing their, just doing their jobs, you know, and are subject to this kind of thing. So I'm curious about, you know, for people who are in public service, how you're feeling about it and, you know, and, and what's still reward, you know, you just, you know, you you just ran for reelection or you just, you know, you just ran for speaker. So you're clearly staying in it. So, you know, both, both how does it feel and, and what is it that's so rewarding to you about being public service that you're willing to take those, you know, the negative that comes with it? Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's, I mean, there's a constant with, uh, with having um, naysayers and negativity and, you know, you sort of account for that. And what keeps me going is uh, when the positives happen and uh, those are far brighter stars uh, than, 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 these, than these, you know, rare moments where folks are really 
uh, quite negative or, or um, you know, there's, there's vitriol in our politics. And so, for example, over the last uh, several months, you know, especially at the at the height of the at the beginning of this pandemic, um, I started to reach out to older folks in my in my community and just to check in and see like what they needed and how things were going and hear, I mean just listening to the fears that they had and you know in some cases because people were staying apart from one another they hadn't you know had conversations with even their family members and it was just like an opportunity to listen and hear uh, what they needed but I, I quickly found that they needed help getting groceries uh, because they were they were fearful of going out to the grocery store and putting themselves at risk and and also getting you know going to the pharmacy to pick up their prescriptions or whatever it was and so I started just going grocery shopping for them and uh, quickly I realized I, I was not gonna be able to do it alone. And so I you know posted on Facebook and uh, a number of people responded positively to helping out. And soon enough, I had like an army of, you know, 12 to 14 volunteers who I could pass off a grocery list and they would go out and, and pick up groceries. And uh, there was one, one lady in particular, her name is Mrs. Hodge. Uh, and she was just so thankful and uh, sent sent in a, a list almost biweekly to the point where I became an expert on what it is she would want from the grocery store more than I knew what I myself would want from the grocery <laughs> store. So it was, you know, it was really rewarding in that sense. I also brought a woman to her cancer appointments, um, you know, just really puts into perspective like, okay, you know, there is, first of all, and, you know, with Thanksgiving, you know, here and upon us, it's like, there's so much to be thankful for. Um, you know, I feel relatively safe going to the grocery store. There are members of our communities who don't. And how profound that is. And we think about the debate over masking and whether or not to wear a mask. It's like, there are literally people in our communities who don't feel safe going out into public at all, let alone going out into a public space where there's people who are so inconsiderate that they're unwilling to simply be inconvenienced uh, by a face covering. And, and so, you know, we have so much happening in the world, but there are definitely some bright spots and some, there's some positivity out there. And um, that was certainly a big highlight for me over the last few months and keeps me going. That's what we do this work for. I love that. And what I love about your answer is that the answer you gave is actually something that someone can do whether or not they're in public serve, I mean, public uh, elected office. So they can, yes, so there are yes. ways to serve whether you're running for office or whether you uh, are not. Um, as a last question to that point, you know, is there any advice you'd give to young people who are thinking about a career in elective office, not just public service, but running for office? Um, anything that you would tell them to be thinking about or advice generally. Yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, you know, plainly there, it's never too early. Clearly, um, <laughs> you know, you can, you can run for office, you can get involved. I mean, uh, my first foray into elected office was serving on a charter commission. I ran unopposed because no one else was interested in it. Um, and I did so while I was still in college and, um, you know, I called into some meetings and came home, uh, for, for meetings as well. Like there are opportunities to serve uh, your communities. There's boards and commissions that often go unfilled. And it's, I think it's now, it's more important than ever before. You know, there's so much happening uh, locally, statewide, nationwide, globally, and young people need to be at the table because it's our futures that are on the line often. And, um, you know, if you're dissatisfied with, with, with what's happening, uh, it's kind of like what President Obama would say, you know, don't boo, go vote. 
In this case, uh, don't boo, go run for something. I love it. I love it. Well, what a great way to end that. I mean, we it's going to take all of us to build back better, as our new president-elect says. And uh, I really believe that. I'm so grateful for your service, and we are all grateful for your service. We, I, I know because I work with leaders across the country every day that you know there is so there are so many bright spots out there about people doing fantastic work. You you among them. And um, but so I thank you. Thanks for being on the show today, and thank you for the work you're going to do the next session. Very excited to be working with you uh, to help you in any way we can over the next couple of years. Thank you so much. I'm thankful for being on the show today and uh, look forward to the work ahead. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm -hmm.